what is the Bible all about? That was the question that we started with eight weeks ago. And we said that the Bible was about the kingdom of God. God's people, in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. And we've seen those things play out through the whole of scripture, haven't we? Through the whole of the Bible's story. And this morning we're going to see God's kingdom come completely, come finally. I said in the first week that the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3 would be a quest to get back to the garden. Well this morning, as you might have noticed in our uh, passage that was read, we are back in the garden this morning. But it's greater than the first garden. We've gone there and back again, only better. The Bible has taken us on a journey from very good at the beginning to perfect at the end. That's why we're looking at the perfected kingdom this morning. We started with the first chapters of the Bible. We're finishing with the closing chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, as I mentioned earlier, is a very misunderstood book. Most of it's not talking about the end as we would understand it, uh, but the end in terms of the new age that Christ has brought in that we saw uh, last week, so the beginning of the new age. So in other words, most of it's talking about our time now. But having said that, this bit that we're looking at this morning is really talking about the end, the end end. And Revelation is written in picture language. So you might have noticed things about a lamb. Well, Jesus is pictured as the lamb that was slain. The devil is pictured as a serpent. It's not just one thing for one thing. Often there are different images of different things. But we need to bear that in mind as we look through this passage this morning. So as we look at this, this is set as Jesus returns to the earth. This is set at the time of the second coming. Now with other weeks we might have been able to date exactly what, where we're at. In this one we don't know the date. Uh, it's still to come. But what we do see is that when Jesus returns, we see the kingdom of God perfected. The kingdom of God perfected. And uh, we've had this table, haven't we, over the, the past few weeks. I've put a copy of it in the inside of your notice sheet. But we're following through that idea. So first of all, we're going to see about God's people. God's people. And here we see that there are people from every nation. On the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there are a couple of verses there that, that point us to the fact that this is true. <clears throat> that actually we've got people from every tribe, tongue and nation coming together. From a different angle, the book of Revelation sees us as 144,000 perfect Israelites. But either way of looking at it, it's people from every nation that have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, that have been purchased by Jesus. In our passage that we looked at in chapter 21, though, we're pictured as a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. So think about it, Jerusalem, that's not a just a random city, is it? That's been all the way through uh, our story, or for a lot of the way through our story. Jerusalem was the place that it focused in on for God's people. Uh, do you remember up there in the partial kingdom, we can see Jerusalem was, was God's place, it was where they lived. Jerusalem here is, is, is described in verse uh, 2 as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, we know that's the church, don't we? The bride of Christ. Also, we know that this is uh, really God's people because this new Jerusalem... Uh, as Laura read to us, is covered in twelves. So all the way through the book of Revelation, twelve has to do with God's people. We know that because actually it points us uh, to that in our very chapter here. So Revelation 21, verse 12, fittingly. Um, 
It has a great high wall with 12 gates and the 12 gates, uh, 12 angels. And on the gates, <clears throat> the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So it's saying, right, okay, the 12, right, that's the sons of Israel. The Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament. But if you look at verse 14, and on the wall of the city, uh, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. God's people, New Testament. So, this city is covered in these twelves, and the twelve is to do with God's people. You see it with 144 cubits wide, you see it with the, all the 12,000 things that are happening. It's just covered in twelves. And what it's trying to show us, really, is that this is a picture of God dwelling with his people. And we know that, again, because it tells us. So, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will be with them as their God. And the rest of this chapter is, is sort of showing you that in picture language, that God is dwelling with his people. We know that his people are there, the new Jerusalem, but we also find out that God is there. God is dwelling with his people. It comes down out of heaven. That's a bit of a clue to start with. But also this new Jerusalem is a cube. I don't know if you spotted that as you, you saw it. I didn't mention this earlier on in the, the hitchhike, that it would be significant later. Um, but the fact that it's got the same uh, length and width and height. So verse uh, 16, the city lies foursquare. It's length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So think about the shape of this city. If, this was, if we're not taking this as picture language, it would be very, a very strange city. It would be roughly the size of Brazil, and it would be the height of Brazil, if you sort of lifted Brazil up on its end. But it's a perfect cube that we're seeing here. Now, there is only one other perfect cube in the Bible, which is the Holy of Holies. That's what we saw as the temple was built. This was the place where God dwelt with his people, the centre of the temple. We saw it as we were going through Exodus in our life groups. And that fits, doesn't it? Because we're told in this chapter, in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. It doesn't need a temple anymore, because God is dwelling with his people. They're in the temple. They're in the Holy of Holies with God. So who are these people? Well, they're the people written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You see that in uh, 21 verse at 27. Uh, <clears throat> but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb's Book of Life. Well, the Lamb in Revelation, I'll say, is Christ, the Lamb that was slain. And he has a book of names, if you like, a bit like a school register, I suppose, a list of names of the people who are his. And in his book are not the list of the greatest and the best, they're a list of those who belong to the Lamb. Those who followed the Lamb. So it means that as we look at this city, not everybody is there. It's not saying this is where everybody goes. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have put their trust in Jesus. So that's who we're seeing from several different angles. God's people. People from every nation. Secondly, we see God's place. The new creation. The promised land, if you like. Now, I've deliberately put new creation. It fits back to what we saw right at the beginning. It's like a new Eden. 
But also because it's tempting at this point to say that this is heaven. And I've deliberately not said heaven, because that's not the language that's used here. The New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. So it's not the same place. And I want to just say this morning that heaven is not the final destination. Now, I'll be careful as I say this. What we often call heaven is, but the way the Bible uses the term is not our final destination. Heaven is the place where God lives. Okay? And when believers die, we do go to heaven to be with God. But heaven is not fundamentally a physical place, a physical domain. It doesn't mean it's not real, but it's not physical. Okay? It's a spiritual domain that we go to. And it means that we won't have bodies there. The Bible suggests that we will be conscious, but we'll be waiting for the end of the world, if you like. We'll be waiting for that time when we get bodies. And the new creation is what God brings about at the end. And the amazing thing about the new creation is that it is heaven on earth. The dwelling of God, where God lives, which is heaven, is now with man. So Belinda Carlisle, that 80s uh, singer, was wrong. Heaven is not a place on earth, but one day it will be. God is bringing in a new heavens and a new earth. But heavens, really, in that context, is sky. And we will live on the new earth. Now, whether that's entirely new or whether it's sort of renewed in some way is up for grabs. I'm not going to get into that this morning because Scripture uses both sorts of imagery to describe what will happen. But when it talks about the new heavens and the earth, it's talking about this place that God will make for us, where we will have physical bodies. So just as Christ was raised physically, so we will be raised physically, united with resurrection bodies. If you want to read a bit more about this, uh, have a look at, in your own time at 1 Corinthians 15. Now that body will be very different in many ways from the one that we have now, praise the Lord. Um, but it will be similar in other ways. In what other ways, we're not told. But in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if you have a look on the back of your notice sheets, 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read you 42 and 43. I've just given you those other verses for context. But so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So what it's saying there is that there's a difference between our, our new bodies and our old ones, but it's, it's like a seed and a plant. There's some sort of continuity. They're not completely different, but there are things that are different between them. So we will have physical bodies. It will be a new creation that we live in. So that's why I've not put heaven, because it's, it's something that's still to come. And we will have rest in this place. That's why I picked a few songs this morning with, with rest in them. Remember, that was the goal of creation right back at the beginning, day seven. God rested. Well, here we have permanent rest, proper rest. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be work to do. Again, we're not exactly told, but in some of the parables that Jesus tells, he talks about people being given responsibility over things that are greater because they have responsibility over things uh, that were smaller, if you think of the parable of the tenants. So it does seem like there's a possibility there could be work to do. But it's not the futile, toilsome work that we have now. It's like the work that Adam had in the garden. Actually fruitful, quite literally for him, wasn't it? 
And it means a restful relationship with God. We'll have peace with God. An irreversible peace. So if you think about it, with Eden, well, that all went wrong, didn't it? But there are no repeats possible with the new creation. If you want to find out why it all went wrong uh, with the first creation, come along tonight. Because we'll see uh, how God repeated it a little bit with, with Noah. But there'll be no repeats this time. We'll have true rest, and it's a permanent rest with God. Then lastly in this section, we see God's rule and blessing, the throne. That's the way it's pictured in Revelation, the throne. See that there, if you have a look at Revelation 22, 1 to 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. On the throne in this new creation is God the Father and the Lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, we see the Spirit stands before the throne, executing the plans of God the Father and the Lamb. So the Spirit is there as well, don't worry. But God's throne is pictured at the centre. He's where all the things come from, where the rivers flow from. God's people are finally now living under his rule. They're willingly bowing the knee to him. And all that's evil is outside. <clears throat> so Revelation twenty-two fifteen. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What he's saying is everybody in this city will be bowing the knee because those who don't bow the knee are outside. And the chapter before really tells us what that's about. So um, let me read you just a few verses from Revelation 20, uh, 11 to 15. This is what's happening to the people outside. But I saw a great white throne and him who was, <clears throat> and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, <clears throat> which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead, who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead, who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a picture of, of coming before God's throne in judgment. And those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into this lake of fire. Now if you're thinking that sounds like destruction, if you think that sounds like they're being destroyed totally, uh, if you look back at verse 10, you can see that the devil is, is here and it's described. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the pro- false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. <coughs> so the devil's thrown into the lake of fire, and that doesn't mean he's destroyed in that sense. It means that he's tormented for eternity. So as certain as heaven is, certain as the new creation is, so hell is a reality here at the end as well. 
a place for those who don't live under Christ's rule. Now often we wish it wasn't there, don't we, as we think through people that we love, as we think through uh, people who might be there. But it's wishful thinking, isn't it? Wishful thinking doesn't make it true. I remember um, a few years ago I was at a pub quiz, evangelistic pub quiz, and uh, talking to a guy who was on my table. I'd never met him before, um, but we were talking a little bit about the talk that the guy had given at the front. And uh, he asked me about my family. Were they Christians? And started speaking about members of my family. And I shared with him that I believed that hell was real. And that uh, I believed that members of my family were there. And it was interesting. The first part of the conversation, we've been talking about heaven. And he'd said, you know, it's just, it's just an emotional crutch. It's just wishful thinking. And then actually, at the end of the conversation, he was trying to tell me that hell wasn't real. And I could repeat his words back to him. It would be lovely if it, if it wasn't real, in a way. But it is real. We can't pick and choose what we uh, know is true. We can't just decide that because something we don't like, we don't like it, it's not real. So, with these things, it, it's sad, it's, it's difficult, it's hard. And we do this lovingly and, and carefully as we think these things through. But there, there is hell here at the end. But it means that there's no rebellion anymore. Satan is crushed, if you like. The serpent uh, is finally done away with. You see, Satan, we think, if you think of our sort of culture's picture of what hell is like, they think of the devil with a pitchfork going around prodding people, don't they? Actually, the devil is in, will be in hell being punished himself. That's what we see. He's been tormented alongside the fallen angels. So hell really is part of that serpent being crushed right from the beginning. But that does mean, you see, that not everybody goes to heaven. Not everybody gets the new creation. Only those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's two very different destinations as we meet the end. It's more than just a fork in the road. It's like a T-junction, isn't it? As we reach the end of history. But your destination is decided by which lane you get in in this life. Whether you bow the knee here and now to Christ, decides whether you're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So one brings blessing... And one brings curse. Let's focus a little bit there on the cursing. Let's have a look at the blessing that we see in Revelation. So if you look again at verses 1 to 3 of 21, you'll see that there are rivers coming from the throne. Now if you remember in Ezekiel, there were rivers coming from the temple. If you remember in Eden, there were rivers flowing out of Eden. It's like the living streams of water that Christ promised to all believers. If you want to think of blessing, the tree of life is there. It sort of disappears off the pages of scripture after Genesis 3, apart from a a random mention in the book of Proverbs. But here it is again at the end. But it looks even better than the tree of life we had in Eden. It's got 12 different kinds of fruit. Again, 12, I think, people. It bears fruit every month. 12 months. 12 points you to the people. It's the people's tree. It's our tree now. It's for all believers. And we see here blessings beyond measure, don't we, in 21 and 22. Somebody said there's no hankies, no hospitals, and no hearses in heaven. But it's even more personal than that, isn't it? Do you see that? Uh, God, in Revelation 21, <clears throat> says he will, in verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. So it's more than just not crying. There's that relationship there. God is wiping the tears out of our eyes. 
Why would we be crying in heaven, uh, in the new creation? Well, it could be the loss, knowing what we've lost, what we've just been talking about. I imagine it's more likely the, the pain and the hurt of our life lived for Christ, the suffering and persecutions that we face that are such a big part of the book of Revelation. I wonder, though, whether there may be tears there slightly differently, though. You get tears, don't you, when you're emotionally overwhelmed. Do you remember a few years ago when uh, there were those Chilean miners that had been down below the, the surface for a number of was it months in the end, by the time they came out? And then you got the pictures of them coming out, crying their eyes out. They were just emotionally overwhelmed. Or uh, <clears throat> if you're a, a, a costume drama fan, uh, Sense and Sensibility. Um, there's a character, Eleanor, in that, who's very stoic and sort of just takes her responsibilities very seriously. But right towards the end, she breaks down hysterically when she finds out that finally she can be with the person that she loves. She suddenly realises that true happiness is possible. So I wonder whether we might have those sorts of tears uh, in heaven as well. Because we'll be happy in heaven. That's not to trivialise it. Joy unspeakable will flood our soul, as we're going to sing later on. It's very possible we might get more happy every day in heaven. Because what makes us happy? Well, actually, it's God, isn't it? We've got all these other things, but what brings us joy is God. And God is inexhaustible. There's always more of him to get to know. He's infinite. So we'll finally be there with God as his people. Finally in his place, enjoying his rule and blessing. God's kingdom will finally come completely. That's what we see. So there are a few implications from this. Two dangers and one huge encouragement. Firstly, two dangers as we approach this. So as we think about the end, as we think about where we're going, the first danger is that we ignore the end, pretty much. If we ignore the end, everything becomes about now. Health now, wealth now, prosperity now. Forgetting that we live by faith in this time. Forgetting the pattern of suffering now and glory later. We forget that actually this age to come is when we get those physical blessings, if you like. And that can become idolatry in this age, can't it? If we chase after health, wealth, prosperity, if we expect those things now. We worship God for what we can get, an easier life, money, fame, success, glory. And I think we know the sorts of people that we're thinking about there who who preach the gospel of everything now, health, wealth and prosperity. But can I give you a cautionary note this morning? We who do believe those blessings belong to the end, we can be guilty of the same thing. Worship God to get things at the end. A good life at the end. No tears, no suffering. Glory, fame, recognition. A huge mansion. You ever ever heard someone talk about the mansions that you've got prepared for you in heaven? If all that stuff excites you the most about the new creation that's the thing you're really looking forward to, there's a strong chance that you're not going there. Because what's good about the new creation, what's good about the future, is God. The fact that we get to be with him. If that's not what excites you, then is there a danger that you're chasing after other things? Actually, you want God, maybe not for things now, but for things later. So there's a real danger if we make it all about the end. Even if we think we're going to get all these things at the end and that's what we are really chasing after. 
But there's also a danger of making it all about the end. If we make it all about the end, we, we actually risk missing out Christ. Uh, some talk about the uh, t- some talk about the end as though everything will happen then, as though Christ's first coming accomplished virtually nothing. Jesus didn't do anything then, but when he comes back, then and we can become obsessed with his second coming in a way that we're not obsessed with his first coming. We don't want to have uh, this is a technical phrase an over-realized eschatology. That's where you bring everything now. But we do want to have a realised eschatology. We do want to have <clears throat> some things now. And a, a, an understanding of the Bible that acknowledges that Christ has actually come. We're not just waiting for him to come again. One that acknowledges that Christ did bring in that new age, even if he didn't do away with the old one. So let's talk about the end. Let's talk about it more. But let's not forget what we have now in Christ. Because if we miss out on Christ, we'll miss out on what we have in Christ already. So we really are God's people now. We really are in God's place in Christ now. We really are enjoying his rule and blessing now. We really do have forgiveness. We really do have new life. But the difference between now and the end is that we enjoy those things now by faith. When Jesus returns, we'll enjoy those things by sight. Faith will become sight in that way. It's not that we don't have them now. It's that we have them now by faith. So it's a bit like uh, owning land on the moon. Now this is slightly dubious because I I get a little bit sceptical when people offer you uh, these sorts of things. Um, But uh, did you know you can buy land on the moon? And uh, there's a guy who... uh, There was a loophole in one of the treaties that happened uh, when they explored the moon. It said that no country and no organisation could own land on the moon. So somebody said, well, I'm not a country, I'm not an organisation, therefore I can own land on the moon, and started selling uh, land on the moon. But you can't own something that you haven't seen. It's, It's yours. So if you bought land on the moon, if it really was legitimate... It really is yours, even if you've not seen it, even if you hold it by faith, even if it's on the dark side of the moon, you could never see it through a telescope. But there comes a difference if you actually went to visit it. If you actually got to the moon, you said, this is my land, I can build a house here. But it's not you didn't own it before, you just owned it by faith. And what really matters then is the reliability of the one who promises, please don't buy land on the moon, because I think it's a bit dodgy. But the one who promises all these things is reliable. We can put our faith in him. And one day we will see it. It will be ours in a a bit of a different way. But it is ours now. So we can enjoy those things. We mustn't forget that God has given us things to enjoy now. And then finally, one huge encouragement. One huge encouragement. What I want to say over the last few weeks, what we've been doing really is this. It's up on the screen. This is one of those adult sort of colouring in things. Uh, I've not really got into them. Uh, people keep buying me them for Christmas because people don't know what to buy me. Uh, but you, you basically sketch sketch in. It's it's sort of grown-up colouring book. But this is really what we've been doing the last few weeks. We've been getting the outline of Scripture. We've been working out the shape of Scripture. And we've got some bits that are already filled in. 
uh, from our prior knowledge and from things that we've learnt. But really, we can spend the rest of our lives filling in the rest of the picture. And we'll never finish it. Some parts will fade after we've pulled them in. Some parts we might not get round to. Other parts we'll just be able to do in a little bit sketchy. Some parts we'll just colour over and over again if we really like them. But this is our life's work. God has given us a whole Bible to look at. The whole of Scripture. And this is the encouragement. He's given it to us not to confuse us, but for us to understand. He's given us an outline, if you like, in Scripture that we can fill in. So I hope that going through this the last few weeks has helped get the big picture of what's going on. We have a map that will help us work out where we are. We've got a general compass as well that shows us that we're always pointing to Christ. But our life's work is really to fill in the rest of the picture. Even if we're, our, our life is, is quite far, uh, far gone, even if we've got most of the picture filled in, actually there's always more to do. But our goal is, is not just knowledge, is it? Fill our head with knowledge as though this is a picture of uh, just information and facts about the Bible. Actually, our life's work is to sketch this so that we can see the beauty of Christ. As we sketch the picture, as we fill it in, we see all the more how beautiful Christ is. Because that's what the Bible's about. The more we sketch, the more beautifully we'll see Christ. So as we do this, as we fill in our gaps in our knowledge, as we look at different books in more depth, let's not lose sight that that's what we're doing. We're trying to get a more beautiful picture of Christ. So it's my prayer that what we've done over the past few weeks will help you paint in Scripture. As we look at the Bible on a Sunday, as we look at the Bible in life groups, as we look at it on our own, as we look at it within families. The Bible is not just about the kingdom. The Bible builds the kingdom as we all see Christ more clearly. So let's look to God to help us understand it better and love him more. I'm going to pray now and then we'll, we'll sing together. Father God, help us as we look into your word, Father, to, to understand the whole of scripture. Father, we know that we all have our favourite parts, but Father, pray that you would help us uh, through this to be able to understand it more better. And Father, pray that as we do, we would see Christ uh, all the more. We'd see him more beautifully, not because we're making him more beautiful, but Father, we're seeing him more clearly. So Father, open our eyes and Father, give us insight through your spirit to understand your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>